0: Well, we are going to continue in our series in the book of Daniel, and uh, we just had the scripture read that we're going to actually be looking at today, and uh, so you can keep your Bible right where it is. Uh, Last Sunday, we began a little mini-series within the broader series of the book of Daniel called uh, Dreams, Death, and Deliverance. It's all based in chapter Two, because that's kind of what we see there. We see a dream, we see the potential for death, and we see deliverance. And so we kind of kicked off this five or six part little mini series. I don't know how many parts it'll be. I'm thinking five, but you never know. The Holy Spirit seems to change things up on us regularly, and that's a good thing. But we did begin last week with week one, and we looked at the predicament. Daniel and Daniel's buddies and all of the wise men of Babylon were in a predicament because king Nebuchadnezzar uh, had sentenced all of them to death because the Chaldeans those were the expert astrologers in Babylon they were unable to describe and uh, decipher a disturbing dream that he had uh, it was a very uh, uh, just a crazy sort of dream that he had and he kept having it over and over and over and And he he had no idea what it meant. And back then, the way that they viewed dreams like that was that it was significant. It must have meant something about the future. So it literally drove him nuts. And uh, he became an insomniac and and couldn't sleep. And so he was very disturbed, and he calls all of his wise men to him. And none of them can produce uh, any information at all about the vision. And so he just got irate, knowing that he would probably never sleep again, and that all of these people that were on payroll were basically useless. And he basically puts out an edict to have them all killed. And so that's the predicament. Now unfortunately for Daniel and his buddies, they were part of the wise men of Babylon. So the it included them. They were under this sentence of death as well. And when Ariok, the chief guard, came to arrest Daniel, because Daniel was not in the king's court when this whole thing went down. All the other wise men were there, but he wasn't there. And his buddies weren't there. And so this guard comes to arrest Daniel, maybe he finds him in his quarters or at his house, I don't think he was at his house, I think he was probably at his quarters at the king's palace, because the king usually had extra rooms for guys like this, and they came and, you know, came to arrest Daniel, and Daniel, you know, asked questions, and you know, what is this about, and why, why do you need to do this so quickly, why has the king rushed to judgment, and so on and so forth, and Arioch was kind enough, and I really believe it's because the Lord had favored Daniel in these ways, but gave Daniel favor through the administration of Babylon, he began to discuss with Daniel what was going down. And Daniel immediately petitioned Arioch to meet with the king and to speak to him. And Arioch granted his wish or his petition, and Daniel went before the king and asked for a stay of execution or basically some time to seek his God for answers or information in regards to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the king granted his request and that is basically where we left off so we looked at the predicament this morning we're going to look at the prayer so this is like what happened next we're going to see this prayer we're going to break these things down I think it'd be befitting to pray once more before we dive into God's word father we again come to you in the name of Christ and uh, we ask um, help us to submit to you and to your word and to its um, objective truth and to its authority and help us to see in the scripture what you want us to see and help us to to grow and to learn to learn and to grow and to be sanctified, meaning to be made a little bit more like Jesus. That should be the heart cry of every Christian, to become like Jesus. And there is power in your word. And your word accomplishes that in our hearts and in our lives. And so we pray for that this morning. Humble us. Help us to submit to you. May we pay attention. May we learn from this amazing text, this God-breathed, life-giving text. We humble ourselves before you. You are our teacher, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, so we're going to pick it up at verse 17. Verse 17, I'll read it. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. So after leaving Nebuchadnezzar's palace, Daniel immediately went to his home and told his companions about what happened. Told them about the death sentence and all of that. Now, it would appear that that these four men, Daniel and his three companions, were roommates. Because Daniel went to his home and these guys are there. So I don't know if these were like, you know... College buddies who weren't working and just hanging out at his house. I highly doubt that. I don't think it was like the Zoolander scene where all the male models live together and they have bunk beds. You remember that? Yeah, I love that. It's just terrible that I love that movie, but I do. Uh, It's funny. Mugatu. But, uh, you know, so you've got these four men that are living in this same apartment or same house. I believe that's how it played out. So he goes in and his pals are there. His buddies are there. And uh, and so he goes in, and uh, and begins to describe to them what happened. Now, what I find interesting about this, with all the kidding and Zoolander, you know, goofiness aside, setting that aside, I find uh, that Daniel has set a, a really amazing example for us here. And this is one of the things that we'll we'll keep seeing these godly examples as we move through this text and as we move through the book. But we have an example of that here uh, through what he does and through the first thing that basically he does when he comes into his house. Uh, He set an example for us. And uh, let me just ask you, you know, what should we do when a crisis or a predicament strikes? You know, what should we do? You know, I think in, in, in theory, we all know what we should do, but what we know we are to do, we don't often do, right? And so Daniel sets an example, and he shows us one of the things that we should do. He connects with godly people, because in the company of godly people, there is wisdom. Uh, you know, this is a huge thing, and it's been a huge help to my life, because, you know, like anyone, I've experienced a lot of crisis and uh, seemingly perilous events or what have you and and or maybe it's in in relation to some sort of decision or something that I have to make but he sets an example for us you, you just you go to godly people and you inform them of what's going on and and that's really one of the first things that he does here now it's good for us to do the same thing because godly friends can actually offer or do for us the things that we really need Uh, Some examples, they can give us godly encouragement. You're not going to get godly encouragement from your secular, you know, co-workers. You might get some kind of encouragement, but they're certainly not going to tell you to plunge into the depths of God's grace through Christ, you know, or what have you. And so you can can receive in the counsel of godly people, even if it's just another person, you can receive godly encouragement. And you're going to need that in, in the times of crisis, aren't you? You're going to need that. Another thing is that they can give us godly knowledge and wisdom. A good godly friend will usually just go to Scripture and, and, or go to Scripture in memory and, and quote or cite a verse about God's promises or His deliverance or something of that nature. But for the most part, they can offer us knowledge. Well, you're in this crisis and... And have you considered this? Or this is what I have seen done. You know, they can impart wisdom to us. Or at the very minimum, they can say, I I don't really know the solution, but I can walk through it with you, alongside of you. So they can encourage, they can give godly knowledge and wisdom. and, And I think probably most importantly, they can give us godly intercession or prayer. They can pray for us. You know, and I'm telling you, there's power in, the, in prayer, man. There is power in prayer. And, and the more people that you get praying over your crisis and situation, the better you will be. You may not get delivered from the crisis because God has just said, I'm, I'm taking you through it because I have a reason. But you don't have to think that the end of the world is there and you can have the right perspective as you go through it. Have you ever noticed how the Apostle Paul in his epistles, rarely prayed for, um, you know, if, if, if one church was experiencing something, he never, like, prayed that they would be delivered from those things. What he prayed for for them was that they would persevere through and honor Christ. And, and so much of our prayer lives when we're responding to crisis have to do with deliverance or these things rather than prepare us and equip us to walk through the fire with you. And so the Apostle Paul does this, but you can go to godly friends and they can pray. They can pray, Father, I pray that you would strengthen Phil as he goes through this episode. I pray that you would strengthen Christina or Brenda or Carl as he's trying to figure out how to deal with this crisis at work or whatever. I mean, run the scenarios so they can give us encouragement. They can give us knowledge. They can give us wisdom. They can give us Intercession. They can go before the Lord and pray on our behalf, pray for strength, pray for deliverance, whatever it is. And I'm telling you, man, in the midst of a crisis, those are the things that we need most. In fact, those are the things that we need most when there isn't a crisis. And we might even need them more so when there isn't a crisis, because when there isn't a crisis, we tend to be kind of frivolous and you know, and just kind of loosey-goosey with our time. We're not serious about the things of the Lord. When all the blessings on us and everything's going smoothly, I, I think that's why one of the psalmists or someone who wrote a proverb, I believe it's a psalmist, wrote, you know, just give me my daily bread. Don't don't give me a whole lot of bread because then I'll forget about you. And, and if if I don't have any bread at all, then I'm likely to steal, you know. So they can give us encouragement. They can give us Wisdom, They can give us prayer. These are big things. And then Daniel sets an example. He goes right to his godly friends, his like-minded, same worldview, same love of God. He goes to them. And I think that, obviously, as we look at 18, verse 18, number three, the godly intercession in prayer, that is what Daniel was ultimately after. That is what he wanted more than anything, because nothing else is said. Besides this statement, look in 18. Okay, so Daniel goes to his friends and told them, 18, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. That's the dream. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed, killed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So after making the matter known to them, Daniel... Asked them to pray. Really, if you think about it, because he wasn't asking for counsel or anything else, his first move wasn't to get the counsel. His first move was to pray and to get others praying over the situation. So that's really the proper order. You can go to godly friends and get godly wisdom and all that, but the first line of defense or offense in any matter should be prayer. So as a godly guy, he sets another example for us. He goes to his friends and says... Get on your knees, man. Start praying over this situation. Prayer was his first response in the midst of this crisis or as it had begun. And yet, sadly, it is usually our last response in a crisis, isn't it? I mean, if we're going to be transparent and honest with, you know... Maybe there's some of us in this room that get that and, you know, no matter what's going on, if something happens or whatever, man, you just, you're on your knees or you're finding a place where, you know, you won't look like a Pharisee in the middle of the mall or something like that. You know, you're, you're trying to find, I mean, is that really how we respond in, in every crisis situation, you know? Uh, I just have to be honest with myself. Sometimes prayer is the last thing that I go to, which basically means that God is the last one that I go to in the midst of a crisis. Because all prayer is, is speaking with God and communing with God, communicating with Him. Ah, see, with Daniel, it was the very first thing that he did. And it's usually our last. Fact is, we usually do all that we can in a crisis. And then when we run out of options, or when we run out of energy, run out of stamina, that is the critical turning point for us where we turn to the Lord. After we've exhausted our resources, after we've exhausted our wisdom or knowledge, after we've exhausted our options, okay, I've done all that I can do. It's now time to call on the Lord. That's kind of the way that we operate. That's the way we function. In fact, it's even worse with some Christians, quote-unquote, they just don't pray at all. They, they don't really, I mean... You can't even squeeze a meal prayer out of a lot of Christians, let alone, you know, let alone some kind of a prayer for, you know, a crisis or something like that. They just, they're not prayerful people. And and I was reminded, I had to Google search it, but I I was reminded of a statement that I'd heard by Martin Luther uh, a couple of years ago. He said this, he said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. That's on point, man. You know, Christianity and prayer are synonymous. The Christian will pray because he believes in and has been saved by an invisible God by which the only way to communicate with this God is through prayer. If you think about it. You got to be about prayer and you got to make that your first thing. We need to follow Daniel's awesome example. He goes to godly people. He could have got wisdom, but in that moment he said, Pray, pray, pray over this situation. Now, if you turn over to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, you will see that prayer actually marked Daniel's life. Uh, In other words, he wasn't a crisis prayer warrior. He was a all-the-time prayer warrior. He prayed all the time. It says this in chapter 6, verse 10, and I'm fast-forwarding in the book. Don't get mad at me. We'll get there in about five years. It says, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That's the ESV translation. Daniel, bottom line, was a man of prayer. He didn't just pray in the crisis. He prayed multiple times a day, just offering up thanks or for a crisis, a combination of all of those things. He was a man of prayer. And we should, as the Lord's people, be men and women of prayer. We should follow His example. And it's really not that difficult to do if you think about it. You can set aside just a little bit of time each day to pray. You know, it doesn't have to be this crazy moment when you turn the lights down and get the strobe light, that'd be weird. Or the candles going, you know, and uh, you know, it doesn't have to be some weird, overly spiritual thing. I don't know about you, but I've been trying to develop the practice of just perpetual prayer. You know, I think you have to have those moments where you do get away or set aside time to pray, but I've been just trying to pray as I go throughout the day, you know, like if something happens or something, you know, Lord, thank you for this, and I bless your name, you know, kind of a Daniel thing there, or or Lord, man, something's going down over here. You know, I remember one time not long ago, I was driving down La Loma, and there was a guy literally laying on the side of the road with paramedics doing CPR on him, and I thought... That basically means that man is dead. He's not breathing. And it just frightened me. So I pulled over and just began to pray for him. You know. And I, I left before whatever happened happened. I don't know what happened. But you know, you can just respond throughout the day in prayer to situations. Or you can just utter up praises as you go about your day. You know. And it doesn't always have to be in response to a crisis or in response to something good that the Lord has done. You can just... Step off to the say and say, Lord, I just want you to know I love you. I love you with all my heart. I bless your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Boom, 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 boom. You can do that. But I would say try to find time in your day to set aside maybe five or ten minutes where you can actually just like really get, you know, prostrate yourself. Get down on your knees and just, or whatever, and just pray to the Lord. Just pray to Him. Just bless His name and seek Him for wisdom. Ask Him for deliverance. Whatever it is that you need or however it is that you just want to communicate your love to Him, it's important that we do this. And always remember that when a crisis strikes, the first thing we should do is turn to the Lord in prayer. You can do that before you can get to your council of wise men or wise ladies. You can start praying and then get with your friends or start texting and saying, you got, would you pray over the situation? You can do that, but make sure we turn to the Lord in prayer first. But I want you to notice something that's so vital here in this text. And this is, this is where my head just goes... Uh, it's, just, it's something that I noticed that I was talking to Carla about yesterday as we went on our RHC walk. We had people that go down and walk in the park. We're just trying to get a little exercise and fellowship. And we started talking about this. But I want you to know something that's vital to this text. Notice how Daniel, did, he did not instruct his buddies to seek the Lord for an interpretation to the king's dream. What did he say to them? He told them to seek mercy. You know, this is is massive in this text. And I I suspect that it's... You know, when people teach through this text, I, I suspect that it's missed. Why did he say seek mercy? I mean, he said... Seek mercy from the God of heaven. Why did he instruct them to seek mercy? What does mercy have to do with this whole situation? How does it play into any of this? At first, read it just seems kind of off subject. Or why would you go after that when you know you've got something else to focus on here, right? I mean, it's so clear in the text. A little earlier, I think last week we looked at it, they clearly needed an interpretation, right? Verse 5, that was the target. But Daniel didn't say, seek the Lord for an interpretation to the dream. He said, seek mercy. Now this unique request reveals several more important things about Daniel that I believe can benefit us. First, And this is what's hidden from the naked eye here. First, it reveals that Daniel believed that God is faithful to His Word. Daniel, asking for mercy, shows that Daniel understood God's Word and and that God is faithful to accomplish, to fulfill His Word. And how do I know this to be true? I know it to be true because verse 18 right there is linked to 1 Kings chapter 8. If you have... Uh, It's very likely that you will see this in a study Bible if you have one that has all of the reference letters next to the verses and words and things, but it is tied to 1 Kings 8, and I'll just give you a little context. After finishing construction on the first temple in Jerusalem some 350 years before Daniel's day and before the Babylonian exile, King Solomon, he's the one who built the temple, He threw a huge celebration, a big party, which included things like the installment of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, many, many sacrifices to the Lord, because they were under the Old Covenant then, they sacrificed animals um, to cover in a temporary way over their sin. So you had the Ark of the Covenant being installed in the holiest of holies, you had sacrifices to the Lord, and then you had several, if you read chapter 8 of 1 Kings, you'll see that there are many prayers of dedication offered up by the king to the Lord as the temple is, is, is sort of um, being dedicated. Because this is, like, this is like opening day for the temple, if you will. Now, during one of those prayers, Solomon unknowingly prophesied. What I'm saying is, is that he said something that became a fulfilled prophecy, but I don't think that he was actually knew that he was prophesying when he said it. He asked, in this prayer, he asked the Lord, he asked God to show mercy to his people, to the Israelites, to the Judeans, if you will, if they were to ever find themselves in a foreign land as exiles. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? He's dedicating the temple to the Lord, and and what he's praying is, is that if your people, they're, they're all in it right now, Lord, but if for whatever reason they turn to lesser gods, they turn to idols, they turn to something else, and, and, and you basically hand them over to an enemy, if they turn from that sin and cry out to you, be merciful to them, rescue them, save them, that is what he basically prayed for. In verse 50 of chapter 8, he said this, forgive your people, who have sinned against you, forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause their captors, those who exiled and brought them out, to show them mercy. That was his heartfelt prayer. Now here's what's incredible. Daniel and his buddies thought that this passage pointed to their predicament, and they believed that if they prayed for mercy, the Lord would be faithful to his word and grant it, thus fulfilling Solomon's request. That's amazing. Every one of us as believers ought to be so familiar with God's word that we're anticipating his promises being unleashed or fulfilled on us as we move through life. They were so familiar with God's Word, and they believed that what God said was true, that God would fulfill. And here they are, claiming this as a promise for themselves. And it wasn't even a promise. It was just a prayer that Solomon offered up. Solomon said, if they do this, show them mercy. And they're remembering this text and saying, That's a prophecy about us. Let's cry out to the Lord for mercy. And He shall give it. Amazing. Do we believe that God is faithful to His Word? Do we believe that He actually does what He says He's going to do? And I'll tell you, you can say yes all day and play lip service, but the way you live your life will prove whether you truly believe that or not. If you're a frightened, shivering chihuahua and anxious about everything and upset about everything, I don't think you believe that He will fulfill His word. If you do, you'll be like a rock. That's the truth. Do we believe that He will? And think of Daniel's situation. He's facing imminent death. Do we believe that God will? Fulfill his promises concerning us. Daniel believed it about himself and his friends. And you know what the result was? Exactly what I just said. Bold and triumphant living. God has made promises to us so that he can fulfill them and be glorified through that, but so that also we would have a sense of security in our lives. Promises are like deposited cash in the bank. It's guaranteed. Yet if you believe that God is true to His Word and that He he will fulfill all that He has proclaimed to fulfill, even in relation to you, your life will result in bold and triumphant living. Daniel is a 17-year-old shemp, And he's standing in the presence of kings! And he's bold, and he gets more bold. We'll see this boldness increase. This guy is so daring. Why? Because he believed in the promises of God. Okay, he believed that God is faithful to his word. Second, the second thing that's revealed here about Daniel's request, it reveals that Daniel understood that deliverance is an act of God's mercy. In other words, deliverance is the outflow of God's mercy. Passages like Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 make this clear in relation to our salvation. It says, God, who is rich in mercy, okay, because of His mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, sins. God delivers people out of bondage to sin, out of uh, going to hell and what have you, By His sheer mercy. If God withholds His mercy, people are destroyed. It is because of God's mercy that we have been delivered from death and made alive in Christ. And what is mercy? Mercy is the outflow of His love. Because God is love. Mercy, love and grace. Love. It's because God is love that He is merciful, and that He gives grace. They all flow out of His love. But mercy is essential to deliverance. Many of the Psalms also make this lucidly clear. King David was always in hot water. Just read the Psalms, read the the historical books, the King's books, and Chronicles Samuel. I mean, he was always in trouble. This guy always had some kind of an enemy on his tail, He was always in hot water. And he prayed to the Lord for deliverance all the time. But one of the things you'll notice about his prayers in the Psalms is that he asked the Lord for mercy before he asked for deliverance. Examples. In Psalm 28, David needed deliverance from his enemies. But before asking for it, he said this, Hear the voice of my pleas, For mercy. In Psalm 30, David needed deliverance from death, but before asking for it, he said, Have mercy on me. In Psalm 51, he said the same thing. He needed deliverance from sin guilt, right? This is after he got all entangled with Bathsheba. He became an adulterer. He became a murderer. He was in bad shape. And he cries out to the Lord for deliverance from sin guilt. Rescue me from this sin and from this despair. But before he gets to the whole deliverance component, he says, have mercy on me. In Psalm 141, David needed deliverance from danger And before asking God for that deliverance, he said this, With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. You see, David and Daniel both understood that deliverance is an act of God's mercy. And that is why they pleaded for mercy first. They knew that if God chose to be merciful to them, they would be delivered. And they knew that if God chose to withhold His mercy, they would perish. They understood how it works. Now when we pray, we usually ask the Lord for the exact things that we need, don't we? If we need deliverance from illness, we ask for healing. If we need deliverance from weakness, we ask for strength. That's a cry of mine regularly. If we need deliverance from financial problems, we ask for financial provision. If we need deliverance from a cruddy job, we ask for a new job, and so on and so forth. And yet after studying this text, I realize that if this is how we pray, then we are not praying for the right thing or in the right order. If we desire deliverance from this or from that, or if we plead for the deliverance of others in salvation, some kind of rescue, we should seek the Lord for mercy because deliverance is the outflow in all cases and in all instances. It is the outflow of God's mercy. Even the Lord's Prayer, when when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, even the Lord's Prayer, when He gave them this model for prayer, even it contains petitions for mercy. How so? Forgive us our trespasses. That's a cry for mercy. Lead us not into temptation. That is a plead for mercy. John Calvin wrote, whenever we fly to God, and I love that, that's what he called prayer, flying up to God. When we fly right into God's presence, whenever we fly to God to bring assistance to our necessities, our eyes and our senses ought always to be turned towards His mercy for His mere good will reconciles us to Him. Man, that's... That's on the mark. Daniel got it, man. He understood that if if he and his pals and the wise men were to receive deliverance, it would only be if God chose to be merciful. Because in every instance, deliverance is the outflow of God's mercy. He got that. And that text reveals that to us. Third, it reveals that Daniel was humble. And this this should be one of the key trademarks of a true believer or of any real believer. Humility. How do I know this to be true? I'll tell you why. Humble people plead with God for mercy. Prideful people do not. They do not. You think of the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. The Pharisee was proud and and sort of irreverent, just kind of ran up to the throne of grace, if you will, just without thinking about what he was doing. He was proud. He was sort of arrogant and, and he was irreverent and he was also critical of others and he approaches the throne of God in this kind of mode. And yet the tax collector... The tax collector in Jewish culture, when it was a Jewish tax collector, that was the biggest traitor and enemy to the Jewish people. When one of their own people joined sides with Rome to sift their own people for money, they were the most despised and loathsome people on the face of the earth. And this tax collector, you got the Pharisee on one side, he's all proud and critical of others. And you got the tax collector, he, he was humble. And guess what? He was critical too. But he was critical of himself, not others. The Pharisee obviously believed that God owed him something in return for his great piety. And yet the tax collector believed God owed him nothing. Nothing. And yet he pleaded for mercy. And Jesus said this, I tell you that this man, he's speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be lifted up, will be exalted. You see, when we seek the Lord for mercy in relation to deliverance or anything, we display humility and that is exactly what our Lord is looking for. And it is exactly what the Lord blesses. As it is written in James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Daniel asking his friends to plead for mercy shows that he was humble. He did not believe for a moment that God owed him anything. He had absolutely no sense of entitlement, which is a problem in this nation. And it's a problem in the church. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And yet Daniel got it. Seek the Lord for mercy in all things, especially deliverance. Moving on. Daniel told them to seek mercy. From whom? It says the God of heaven. Now this designation of the true God came into prominence at the time of the Babylonian exile. You will see it used in the book of Genesis and in other places, but it didn't get as popular until this particular moment in history. It is used five times in the book of Daniel. And in the Babylonian religion, which was basically astrology, the gods were linked to the moon, uh, the sun, and the stars, Uh, They would be what we call astral gods. Uh, The Babylonians had a moon god. They had a sun god. They had various star gods. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Islam borrows from Babylonian mythology in that the Arabs in ancient Mesopotamia uh, took the Babylonian moon god called Sin. I mean, that's pretty crazy when you name your god Sin. It's befitting when it's your false God, right? The Babylonians had a a moon god and he was kind of their chief god and his name was Sin. And guess what Muslims did back in the old days? They took Sin and renamed him Allah. Have you ever noticed how one of the symbols in Islam is a crescent moon? That's it. That's the symbol of that god. It's incredible to think that all Islamic terror and bloodshed, and it's certainly not committed by all Muslims, but it's incredible to think that all Islamic terror and bloodshed has been committed and is still being committed in honor of a mythological moon god. It just goes to show how far humanity will go in its depravity. It's incredible to me. And there's significance in Daniel's use of this designation here, and that's why I paved the way for that and gave you the little historical lesson. Daniel used the God of heaven designation to show that the God of Israel, his God, rules over heaven or space, which is where the planets, stars, moon, moons, and so-called Babylonian gods exist. Boiled down, The God of heaven translates or means God who is over the Babylonian gods. That's why he uses this designation. He is trying to show that his God is superior and completely over all of these false astral gods. My God is the God of heaven, which means He's higher than your gods that exist in heaven. My God is above it. He is over it. He created it. That is essentially what He is saying here. Now, it's important for us to understand this now. Because a little later in this chapter, Daniel is going to use this designation three times while speaking with Nebuchadnezzar, thus declaring that his God is superior to Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Now that's boldness. That's a death sentence if you ask me. Do that in front of ISIS. You wouldn't even have a chance to do that. This is incredible. Daniel and his buddies uh, were to, Daniel told his buddies actually to seek mercy from who? The God of heaven in regards to what? It says concerning this mystery. The mystery uh, they were concerned about was obviously Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They needed to discover what it was about and then deliver this information to the king. Why? The second half of verse 18. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, here is verse 18 paraphrased Daniel asked his friends to pray to the God of heaven for mercy in solving this mystery so that the four of them wouldn't be killed along with the whole company of Babylonian wise men. That's verse 18 in a nutshell. Look at 19a. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Oh man, what what do we see here? We see that the God of heaven answered their prayers, answered their petitions. God showed mercy, right? And revealed the king's dream to Daniel through a vision which he had at night. It's important for you to notice that this is not a dream, you have to be asleep. Visions were usually given, and sometimes in dreams, but most of the time they were given while a person was awake. I say Daniel was awake here for sure, and he was in prayer. He was praying this same prayer, seeking the Lord for mercy one night. And what's interesting is that God, the God of heaven, answered their prayer by giving the the description and the, uh, the interpretation, if you will. But at the same time, God, the God of heaven also answered Solomon's 350-year-old prayer. Pretty amazing. Mercy was to be given to the exiles. That's what Solomon prayed for. And here it comes. Right here, people. Man, if you don't believe that God fulfills His Word, there's an example for you. It's right there. I'm not making this up. How did Daniel respond? 19b. (laughs) Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He blessed the God of heaven. Daniel broke out in praise because that's how blessed translates. It translates as praise. He praised the God of heaven. This is... Not prayerful praise. This is open. Thank you, God. Thank you, the God of heaven. Thank you. He's thanking Him out loud. His roommates are probably saying, we're trying to sleep. He's praising God. Probably at the top of his lungs as we should be doing. And here's what's fascinating. Again, here's where we get stung again. He could have immediately rushed off to Nebuchadnezzar with the answer... I got the interpretation. Our lives are saved. Here you go, great king. He could have just rushed off and done that. I guarantee Nebuchadnezzar was awake. He wasn't sleeping because of the dream. He could have went right in and got an audience and broke it down for him. Boom, they're safe. Oh, that's not at all what he did here. Even with his life in the balance, he took the time to praise God for the answer he had received. Isn't this another area where we often fall short? We pray passionately for deliverance from our trials, but when deliverance comes, we fail to return praise to God. Like nine out of the ten lepers healed by Jesus in Luke 17, we go on our way rejoicing that our problems are solved, eager to get on with our life, We forget the one from whom our healing, our deliverance comes. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, The test of our spirituality does not lie only in the fervency of our prayers in times of crisis but in the wholeheartedness of our worship when God acts in grace. In other words, we prove to be truly spiritual when we not only pray to God, but when we praise God for answering our prayers. That's the test. Remember, Jesus rebuke the Pharisees, or at least warned His disciples about them. They would go out on the street corners and offer up all these prayers. They wanted to show that they were spiritual by how they were always in prayer. But the true test of our spirituality doesn't just come by how often and how frequently we pray. It comes by how we praise. Big difference. Guilty. Guilty. Both Prayer and praise are the indicators, not one or the other. Now, Daniel again modeled this for us here. He models something else, and it, it's the praise component. He could have ran off. Not only did he, you know, praise here, but he breaks off into this extraordinary prayer of praise. It's just incredible what he does here. He could have just thanked God then went to the king's court. No, no, no. He breaks off into this extraordinary praise, through prayer. It's a kind of a benediction kind of thing going on here. Look at verses twenty two or twenty through twenty two. Daniel asked or answered, not asked, he's already been asking, What am I thinking? Daniel answered and said. After he praises God out loud, he begins to pray. And he says this in his prayer, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Wow. Now let's just break this section down. Daniel began by stating, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. You know, we have a a saying here at RHC that we like to use from time to time. You'll hear it in some of the sermons, and if you look at Shannon's arm, you'll see it tattooed there. We borrow it from the Reformation. It is the Latin phrase, Soli Deo Gloria. It translates, Glory to God alone. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever was Daniel's sole Deo Gloria statement. That's in effect what he was saying. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To Him alone should He be glorified. Should be glorified. His God, the God of heaven, is to have His name praised Forever and ever. Because He alone deserves all the glory. This is all packed into his statement. Because He alone possesses what? What did he list? Wisdom and might. Might translates as power. Daniel goes on to describe examples of God's wisdom and power. Right? He listed six. Number one, He changes times and seasons. This has to do with God, how God uses His power to control nature. This is a statement about nature and how God sovereignly controls nature. He's the one that ushers in fall, and He can do that now if He wants. Secondly, He removes kings and sets up kings. This also has to do with God's power. God uses His power to establish and depose world leaders. Okay, God has formed the nations, and He's the one that raises up and tears down leadership. His sovereign power, He does that. These guys, we we think that we elect people, but behind the scenes, God is appointing and actually, in a way, giving us exactly what we long for. Thirdly, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This has to do with how God imparts wisdom and knowledge to people. And you must understand, all true wisdom comes from God. He is the source of true wisdom and the giver of it. It says in Proverbs 2.6, wisdom comes and proceeds out from His mouth. Number four, He reveals deep and hidden things. This also has to do with God's wisdom in relation to the mysterious He alone knows and reveals mysteries like Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And because he's sovereign, he's the one who gave the dream. Remember how we talked about that? The dream came from him, frustrated the heck out of Nebuchadnezzar. He gives the interpretation. Frustration goes away. The glory of God is exalted. There's deliverance. He alone reveals, knows, understands completely and reveals mysteries like Nebuchadnezzar's dream things that baffle and, and overload the human mind, the inexplicable. God knows all these things. He knows and reveals the deep and hidden things. Five, He knows what is in the darkness. This has to do with God's wisdom and His knowledge, His understanding in relation to the future. To us, the future is shrouded in darkness, isn't it? Our eternal future is pretty eliminated, but I have no idea what's going to happen next Monday. We, 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 we just don't have this power. We don't have this ability. But with God, He knows, understands the future perfectly. He sees it all. In fact, He planned it. So He knows what is in the darkness. He knows The future, and that's exactly what this dream has to do with future kingdoms that'll rise and fall, and then the eternal kingdom that'll stand forever. We'll get into all that in a few weeks. Six, I love this statement, and the light dwells with him. This has to do with the limitlessness of God's wisdom. Since light dwells with God, nothing is hidden from his understanding. He resides in light and literally knows all things we call that omniscience. Daniel may have employed this description to refute the prevailing notion among the Babylonians that their deities were givers of light. You just rewind a little bit to the back in the story a little bit, and you see that. The the beholders of those Babylonian gods could not come up with answers, thus proving that those Babylonian deities could not give light. And Daniel says, and light dwells with him. That's a rebuke. That's a statement against those gods who cannot reveal and give light. Fantastic. This is all his praise and his thanks and he's just exulting in God and God is sovereign. God has all the power and all the wisdom and he's proven it to Daniel. Look at 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel thanked and praised God for the wisdom and power he had imparted to him personally. What a a great wrap-up. That's the benediction, you know. Man, his prayer was answered. He just praises like crazy and exalts in God and lifts up the name of God who's above all. Man, that's how we should respond. You know what's really, really incredible about this whole section is Daniel's amazing faith. At this point, he was absolutely certain about the accuracy of God's revelation to him. And yet he still had to present it to the king and the king still had to render a verdict. His life was still on the line at this point. But that is not the way that he saw it. He knew God's word is true. He knew God comes through all the way. He knew that the accuracy of God's revelation was spot on. He knew that he was delivered way before he ever went and got the verdict of deliverance. That is amazing faith. That is amazing faith. He didn't need the proof. He didn't have to go to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, God, you were right. Thank you. He believed it before he got there. Amazing. Do we possess this kind of faith? Faith that trusts. In the Word of God and the promises of God, to the point that we spend our time in praise and worship instead of in anxiousness and worry. There's your parallel. You know, what we do is God would give us the vision and then we would be questioning it the whole time. Okay, that really seemed cool and I I hope it works. That's feeble faith. Do we have amazing faith like Daniel and we just believe and take God's word as it is and move forward and stand in boldness, stand in victory and press on without anxiety, without worry? Do we have amazing faith like him and we just praise and worship or do we have ordinary faith? Or do we not have faith at all? Closing. Mm. i got to breathe because it's going to be hard to keep it together here. How does this passage point to the Lord Jesus? We could end the service or end the sermon right where we did with where's our faith at, test yourself, you know, and we could just kind of close in prayer and and all that, and, and that would be seemingly good. But I believe that we will have missed the mark by a million miles. This is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Every scripture will point to him. You just got to look. Jesus said the prophets and all the prophets and, and the law and all of it testifies to me. Why would this text be any different? How does this passage point to the Lord Jesus? Well, earlier I told you that Daniel was a man of prayer. The Lord Jesus was also a man of prayer. In fact, he still is as our great high priest. He intercedes on our behalf, Romans 8:34. If you read the gospels, you will see the Lord Jesus praying all sorts of prayers in all sorts of uh, situations and in all sorts of places. He traveled all over Palestine, Israel, and the Decapolis. He had a very broad ministry and he spent an enormous amount of time in prayer before feeding 5,000, before feeding 4,000, just leaving and getting away from the disciples and the monotony of ministry just to be with, the, you know, be with his father. He was a, a man of prayer, and he still is. Did you know that on one occasion he prayed like Daniel? It was the night of his arrest. While praying in the garden, He suddenly became fully aware of what He was about to experience on our behalf. Unimaginable suffering at the cross. He became filled with anguish to the point that His sweat became like drops of blood. In a moment of despair, He cried out to the God of heaven for deliverance. He said, Father! If you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. And yet he said, I want your will to be done, not mine. He prayed for deliverance. And yet the difference between Daniel and the Lord Jesus is, the Lord Jesus received no deliverance it did not come when he cried out and he went to the cross and drank the cup of suffering. You see, it wasn't the father's will to crush Daniel in Babylon, but it was his will to crush Christ at Golgotha. Why? It says in Isaiah to make his life an offering for sin. Why? So that you and I could be forgiven and saved. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus received no deliverance from the God of heaven on the night of his arrest? I am.